Hello, and welcome to the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, joined, as always, by the Libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, as well as Professor of Law at NYU, and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, the Pope, part one. So, Richard, you had so much to say about Pope Francis's recent visit to the United States. We've broken this into a two-part series. We'll focus more on economics in the next installment. But today we're going to get into some of the other topics that you've addressed in your recent column for Defining Ideas. But before we get into any of the specific areas that Francis talked about, let me approach this a different way. We are told with, with some regularity – there's also been some research from the Pew Center to back it up – that America is becoming a less – religious country. The number of people who identify as Christians is on the decline. The number of people who don't identify any attachment to a religious affiliation is increasing. And I mean we should be clear. You've mentioned on an earlier installment of this show that you regard yourself – I believe the phrase was a rather weak, non-practicing Jew. But my opening question here, do you regard – do you regard that decline in faith with any sort of dread? And is there because of that some hope to be found in the fact that a Pope Francis does seem to occasion genuine excitement in a way that we haven't seen a religious figure do for a while. I'm of very mixed emotions on the decline in faith because I have very mixed emotions to the way in which various religions behave on various kinds of issues. I mean there has been a very long tradition of social activism inside the United States by many of the Protestant sects. William Sloan Coffin was an illustration of that. Oddly enough, those sects have generally been in decline in the United States, the Methodists, the Lutherans, the Episcopalians and so forth on the Protestant side, whereas the more fundamentalist evangelical conservative groups like the Southern Baptists have obviously been on the gain. And so to the extent that I agree with what particular religious groups are advocating. I'm not upset about their ascendancy uh, to the extent that I disagree with them. Sometimes I find it troublesome. I certainly think that every religious group ought to be allowed to express whatever sentiments it has on these things. Uh, the danger that you have with all of these religious groups, including the ones that I agree with, is whether or not they can speak ex cathedra and therefore get a special advantage over the rest of us. And that is certainly one of the issues with respect to the Pope. I think, in fact, the Pope has gotten a lot of support, not because he's a Catholic figure, but because he resonates with a lot of the, pro the populist themes which have gained a lot of strength in the hands of people like Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump and so forth, and that he talks about the same thing. It, it's not all that surprising if you go back and remember where he was and where he came from. The Pope was born, I think it was in the end of 1936, and he was raised in Argentina at the time that uh, Juan Perón and his company was in control. And, you know, that was a very strong populist movement with very heavy socialist implications. I think the Pope learned to his credit, about the dangers of uh, uh, political violence associated with um, strong socialist or any strong government regime. But I think he probably inherited and imbibed some of the strong socialist sentiments uh, from his youth and carries them forward as part of his general populist theme. And I sit there and I say to myself, if I said anything like that, I would say, shame on you, Richard. And now all of a sudden, by virtue of the fact that it's something which is said by a pope, it seems to get an added fillip even in uh, discussions 
conversations that take place in, in secular settings. And I think what one has to try to do is to put aside the religious, religious authority, don't worry so much about the pedigree, but rather to worry more about the strength of the particular arguments. And on most of the issues on which he talks about, I really don't think that um, he manages to escape the common weaknesses of other progressives and other populists. Okay, so let's get to the substance of some of those arguments. I want to start you with foreign policy. And of course, Christians in the Middle East are in an especially precarious position these days. Religious persecution has a qualitatively different meaning in that part of the world than it does here. You were very critical of Pope Francis in this column on this front. You said that his his musings on this topic, and I'm quoting you here, mask a weak form of moral relativism, close quote. I know there are some specific comments that occasion that. So explain what you mean there. Look, I mean, I regard what is happening in the Middle East as a, a complete social, political, and moral catastrophe. You know, I've said for a very long time that the consequences of the withdrawal of American power from the Middle East means that there's no credible agent for good that operates in that particular setting. And into a void of that sort, the most ungodly creatures, to coin a phrase, will start to rush. These include all sorts of extremists from Iran. They include, of course, ISIS. They include the Soviet Union and so forth. And so long as the United States has made a commitment not to unleash its military force in there, these groups will form alliances um, that will wreak great deal of discretion. They will engage in mass actions of genocide against helpless populations within their borders. And what the United States does is to constantly say how ultimately we think that we will resolve these things. All of those statements it now becomes painfully clear were done against the background that we assume that there would be no new entrance into to the area. And certainly nobody thought that the Soviet Union, or excuse me, Russia as it is today, would march heavy military equipment into Syria. Now that all those things have started to happen, uh, you have a president who's reluctant to use military force in the circumstances where it's necessary and increasingly difficult to deploy. So what does the Pope do? It cannot be under these circumstances that what you do is you call for deliberation and multilateral responses to the kinds of problems that are at hand. Multilateral Multilateralism is a sure recipe with respect to delay. And if, in fact, the multilateralism requires that you get those people who are complicit in these atrocities to join in the attack against them, it means that nothing whatever will be done. And so when the Pope sits there, it seems to me that a man who worries about the poor should also worry about the death of people, whether rich or poor, who have religious beliefs that are similar to those of his own religion. And, and it's just a shocking quiet. I, I did not mention in the column, but I had the same kind of disquiet about the way in which he responded when he went to uh, Cuba to meet with Raul Castro. I think he also met with Fidel. Uh, the United States policy on this, insofar as it's in favor of free trade, is something I think that I would in general support. My view is that best ambassadors for American overseas are American tourists who can give Cuban citizens a sense of what life at its best is like in the United States. But I'm struck about how little the president and now how little the Pope has done in order to support the dissonance in these countries, even to the point not of imposing conditions on what the Cuban government does, but announcing the support for them. And, and so it was pointed out that the Pope did not visit with any of the dissonance when he went to Cuba. And the Vatican office gave a kind of a weak milk toast apology saying, well, he wasn't fully aware of the situation. I mean, you've got to wake up and smoke the coffee to get this one. The problems in the
the Middle East on this issue started the day that Castro, rather in, in Cuba, started on the day in which Castro took office back in the beginning of 1959. You've had 56 years and more in order to figure out what's going on. We knew about the slaughter of all sorts of people by the early Castro administration. It's you know moderated its behavior a little bit, but it's still a pretty vicious place. If you want to talking about things, you have to go there and you have to tell them something. Maybe you don't want to say take down that wall to quote President Reagan, but to basically be quiet in the face of demonstrable evil is, I think, a form of moral cowardice, and I think it's a kind of a moral relativism. I mean, what the Pope is willing to do is what the President is willing to do. Take Western democracies where things are not perfect, but certainly in a better shape than otherwise, and criticize those in any way possible. And then when you're faced with real evil, what you do is you take a tactful silence. This is not the appropriate way in which the moral leader of the Catholic Church, in my judgment, ought to behave. He has to stand up for human rights right across the board, and he has to look some dictators in the eye and say, to the extent that I have moral authority, um, in what I do, I hope to diminish the moral authority that you have for pursuing some of these terrible programs. The Pope, during one set of his remarks, also had this sort of laundry list of, of behaviors that deserved uh, moral condemnation. The list here, uh, human trafficking, the marketing of human organs and tissues, the sexual exploitation of boys and girls, and slave labor, including prostitution. I know for Richard Epstein, one of those things is not quite like the others. Well, I mean, look – Organ transplants and tissue transplants, uh, that anybody would equate market transactions in those areas with prostitution, with slave traffic and so forth, is to put it mildly, just a grotesque judgment which indicates all loss of moral bearings in the way in which the world organizes. Uh, one of the things that we know about markets is that they don't work if the market turns out to be in other human beings. And so if you have a situation where A is selling B to C, A and C essentially are joint conspirators who ought to be roundly condemned. The entire system of criminal law does not stand for the wonderful proposition that freedom of contract always ought to be respected regardless of the nature and the object of the contract. What happens is if the contract that people enter into is one to trade in human lives or to attack people, it's no longer a contract. It is now a conspiracy in restraint of not trade, but a conspiracy in furtherance of all sorts of terrible kinds of objectives. And one ought to attack any agreement between two people which trenches upon the sort of the individual autonomy of third persons because the reason is that these contracts are efficient is between the parties, which means that they make a greater menace with respect to the world because all their externalities turn out to be negative. And so, I mean, one cannot say enough about how terrible it is that these forms of trafficking start to take place given the power of coercion over it. Now, when you start looking at something like an organ or a tissue market, nobody is saying, in effect, what we ought to do is to line people up against their will, put them on the wall, and have surgeons come along and exact their organs. The question is whether or not there is, for organs or for tissues, a way in which the transfer between these two parties, with their full and voluntary consent, can, in fact, improve overall human welfare. And it turns out that, you know, everybody's in favor of organ transplants, so it's not as though somebody simply says that the fact that somebody loses a kidney and gives it to somebody else is a terrible thing. We have about six or 7,000 live organ transplants per year in the United States, typically amongst members of the family. And, and I would think that anybody would be 
just horrified at the proposition uh, that a parent or a sibling could give an would be prohibited from giving an organ to somebody. Of course you allow them to do that. Now, it turns out that uh, there are lots of difficulties in matching organs and that a larger pool will help this thing work. Uh, But asking somebody to give an organ to a stranger is a no trivial deal. I've done a number of estimates as of other people to figure out what it is that it takes somebody to issue a kidney to another person. There's a small risk of death. It might cost you on average about 10 days a week of life because of the two or three in 10,000 chance of death that comes out of it. There is certainly all sorts of risk of physiological deterioration, which can be controlled, but are not zero. There's the trauma of the situation, the difficulty of dealing with family. You put all of this stuff together and it's probably $50,000 of net loss to an individual. And, you know, it's very difficult to ask people to make gifts of $50,000 in cash to strangers, and it's going to be even harder to get them to make gifts to strangers of an organ where it's much more difficult for them to quantify their own loss. Uh, Then you look at this thing from the other side, and a live organ is basically worth, if it's a kidney, about 20 years of pretty good life to a recipient who gets it before he or she is in such terrible health that nothing will do them any good. And if you try to figure out a dollar figure for 20 years of additional life, you can have all sorts of quarrels about it. But if you can't get to a number above one or probably $2 million, you don't have a lot of imagination on how these calculations work. And so there you have it, a situation in which we allow gifts to take place that will produce net gains of close to $2 million relative to a small cost of, say, 50000 And they can't take place because you can't get over the barrier. There are a thousand different schemes that you can try to use in order to persuade people to give organs. Outright cash grants, insurance against adverse consequences of one sort or another. So you give them health insurance. You can have them tax deductions for certain kinds of things. To simply rule all of these alternatives out of the picture means in effect that the only thing that will happen is there will be a net increase in human suffering. If you look at an organization called UNOS, uh, the United Network of Organs, organ sharing, um, which enforces the National Organ Transplant Act, or NOTA, you can find on there a list of the number of people in need of a kidney. And that number is about 100,000 today, some of whom will get it only after they deteriorate, others who will turn out and die. And, and if one has such a passionate objection to markets, what you're saying in effect is any effort by any scheme, anybody, to try and alleviate that degree of suffering shall be treated as sex trafficking. That is a grotesque moral judgment. The Pope had no business saying anything like that. He can say I'm against it because I think they're dangers of oppression or disadvantage and so forth. Any objection that he wants to raise that is specific to the project, I am more than happy to answer because I think he'd be wrong on virtually all of those. Uh, But it seems to me that to do this in this categorical form is to set back serious debate on this topic because of the enormous influence that he has generally over public deliberation. And so I was really shocked and saddened by watching that kind of statement. I would almost beg and implore him to reconsider what he said once he realizes the horrific consequences uh, that he's prepared to tolerate in this particular area. I want to talk in closing here on the about the Pope's position on climate change because with the publication of his encyclical earlier this year, that's been a big focus of, of media <laughs> attention and he did spend a fair amount of time on that here in the States. Here's the sentence in your Defining Ideas piece that I take to be sort of the thesis statement of your criticism, Francis, on this issue. Quote, awareness of the – quoting Richard Epstein, awareness of the problem 
does not explain the best techniques for dealing with the threat. There is, Richard, increasingly a sense – you get it a lot in the media – that acknowledgement of the concern is a package deal, that there are a certain set of policies that you are thus virtually compelled to support as a result of assenting to the notion that climate change is a legitimate problem. And you don't buy that, do you? No. I mean, look, there are so many difficulties with the package approach and so much difficulty unpacking of what it is that is right and wrong about the climate change literature. And so the first thing you have to do is you have to assess the nature of the threat, which is not easy. There is a common statement out there that 95-7% of the climate scientists in the world believe that global warming is related to the increase in carbon dioxide. Uh, the statement in some sense is true, but it's also trivially true. Um, you could argue argue, for example, that an increase in carbon dioxide will over the next 100 years raise temperature by 0.1 degrees centigrade. Well, that's not a very big deal one way or another, and it's consistent with the general proposition. You could also argue that certain kinds of techniques that the government wants to impose will reduce the amount of carbon dioxide and, and, cre and reduce the temperature, but some of the clean air proposals the government has by its own estimates are exactly in that one-tenth of a degree range. And as far as I'm concerned, and that's just noise relative to the problem, which only starts to kick in earnestly, depending on whom you ask, at the very least at two degrees centigrade. And then you start looking at the current data, and, and what is very clear is, yes, global temperatures have increased over the last 55 or 60 years, but they've been almost stable over the last 18, and it turns out most of the temperature increase um, took place before the large surge in the amount of carbon dioxide. And in the post-surge period, it's been relatively level. Well, this suggests that there's some other stuff that are going on, which may be difficult to identify. And getting that right becomes extremely important. Uh, so getting the sense of the magnitude of the problem actually requires a lot of work. There are some people who believe that uh, it's all latent and that it's just going to build up and come out of the oceans and hit us with the fury. I knew at least one person who said, wait for 40 years and you'll see what starts to happen. My own reaction is in 40 years, technology could run a complete revision so that we may not have to worry about this. And I'm not so sure you want to force feed the technology, which is going to improve very rapidly by putting stringent controls into place. Then you actually look at the system of controls that are put into place. And, and the number of these that are completely self-destructive is very, very large. And you know, if you're going to condemn this stuff, you have to go after it. Let's start with Germany, which on this issue has a green policy which can only be described as insane. What they've decided to do is to heavily subsidize wind and solar by making it primary over nuclear power, which means that uh, a very erratic source becomes first, and then you have to constantly figure out how to jig a much more complicated plants, um, at which don't respond very well to short-term changes. It's not easy to power down or power up a reactor. So they get the priorities wrong. They should follow the French. The French! And think of putting in new reactors that are better rather than trying to do this wind and solar stuff, which will never work because you can't store it um, in either nighttime for solar or quiet times with respect to wind. So what do the Germans do? They now start to burn large amounts of soft coal, which is absolutely the worst source of pollution that's possible. So it turns out their net policies get things exactly backwards. You go to India, uh, they refuse to modernize. They have all sorts of you know, barriers against importation of stuff from overseas. They're also big into burning soft coal. I mean, nothing that this happens in the United States can stop that. And the truth is that the American system has produced much more usable power per unit of carbon dioxide now 
now than it's ever done before. Fracking as a technology is probably 50% more efficient relative to its baseline even 50, you know, five or so years ago. We have terrible environmental policies insofar as we make it very difficult to get new plants for coal or for anything else, oil and gas, on the market. And at the same time that we get all of these difficulties, um, what happens is we encourage the repair of plants that are completely wasteful so that we basically penalize new and good technologies in order to get some bad technologies and keep them alive. Worrying about these techniques really matters and the danger of having somebody like the Pope talking about that is he assumes, as you said, the package deal. Agree with me on the somewhat misleading formulations about global warming and then all of a sudden everything that the standard left-wing propaganda wants to do is right. This is a hard technical problem. I mean I've spent a lot of time trying to work as a lawyer working through these various regulatory systems and, and one of the things that you discover is there's many a slip between the cup and the lip. Whether you're talking about water law or whether you're talking about air pollution, or whether you're talking about the Food and Drug Administration, or whether you're talking about banking. Uh, the actual scores on implementation are exceedingly low, even when they're real problems like pollution or bankrupts or contaminated drugs. And so getting your perspective into the instrumental and institutional side really matters. And about that, the Pope has nothing to say and kind of implicitly assumes if you sort of get it right on the ends, then anything goes with respect to the means. This is terrible way to think about public policy. All right. Thank you, Richard, and thank you to our listeners. And remember, you can find Richard's weekly column, The Libertarian, by visiting Defining Ideas at Hoover.org. And you can follow him on Twitter at Richard A. Epstein. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.